So um, when, when I was a, a kid, I had, I had two little brothers around me uh, all the time, and we were constantly picking at each other and, and bothering each other. And sometimes if, uh, if one of us stubbed our toe on something, we would say like, ha, God got you. Anybody, anybody ever done anything like that before? Or have you ever thought to yourself, like when you lost something or you, you know, had some little mishap that maybe God somewhere was punishing you for something? Anybody re- relate to that? Yeah, most of us can relate to things like that. And um, have you ever done this? If you didn't relate to the first one, maybe you, maybe you can relate to this one. When, when somebody who you might secretly be jealous of makes a mistake, like they're, they're really on point, but then they make a mistake, and you say something like, well, pride cometh before the fall. <laughs> Those kind of things. Um, I think if... If you're still doing that in your mind, those, those type of things, which probably we all are to some degree or another, it might point to a need for a reflection on things. What, one, of the th- one of the things that I've been thinking about, uh, being preaching on New Year's and with this text in front of us, is how we do or do not reflect on the lives that we have had, like the last year that we've had or the life that we've had up to this point. And... Um, when I think about some of the Facebook posts I see and things like that about the last year, people say stuff like, man, last year was terrible and I want to burn it up and throw it away in the trash can and kick it to the curb and I never want to see anything from that year ever again. You know, those kind of things. And I'm like, wow, I, I, that's okay. That, that was a really bad year. Um, but I wonder, was, was the whole year really that bad? I mean, can you just throw the whole thing away like that? And, and I'm wondering, how do you reflect on that big chunk of time and uh, come up with so little? Or maybe it's the fact that it's, there's no reflection. You're just having like a gut reaction to what was taking place. Um, I think that we rely often, and I rely often, on sentimentality or maybe even just really quaint spiritual or religious phrases to explain away things that really need a lot of reflection. Um, When someone close to us dies and uh, we quickly tell them, well, they're looking down on us from heaven and we'll all be back together soon. And we sort of just like cut away the the time to, to grieve and to think about things and to be confused and to not understand why what's happening is going on. And we have the best of intentions when we do it. Or when, we have, when, when we're married and we're talking to a single person who wants to be married, and we say, well, maybe, you know, in my life, God had to teach me this before I could get married. And it's like, oh, wow. That's, so you're saying I'm not as mature as you, so that's why I can't get married. I think these are problems with reflection. I don't think anybody's meaning to be harmful or hurtful, unless you're jealous of that person and you're doing the whole pride before the fall thing. But in general, I think if we learn to reflect as the writer of the Gospel of Matthew is reflecting on Jesus's life here, that we can come away with a deeper understanding or at least a hint 
or at least a better question of what God might be doing in our lives. And so with that idea, with thinking about that we're looking for a hint of how to reflect or questions that can help us reflect on our lives in the new year, let's go into this text a little bit deeper, starting with uh, verse 13 uh, in the beginning of our reading passage this morning. Before I do that, I'd like to pray. I have not prayed this morning. So, Lord, I, I pray and I ask that you would speak in and through me. I pray in the ways that we are afflicted this morning that you would bring us comfort. I pray in the ways that we are too comfortable that we would find ourselves afflicted. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 13, what's happening here is uh, Jesus is a very small child, he's a baby. He could fit into one of our CC. Uh, K, or no, it's just CCC, uh, onesies. That's really adorable to think about and maybe sacrilegious, I don't know. Um, And Mary and Joseph have just been visited by the wise men who, uh, ironically, not with a lot of wisdom, told the ruling king of the time, hey, guess what? King Herod, there's a new king that was just born, and we thought we'd come here. You might know something about that. So King Herod doesn't like that, and he wants to kill Jesus. And so that's the point where this story picks up. And so when they had gone, and verse 13 is speaking of the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, who is Jesus' father, in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So, God in flesh is a baby and is having to have his parents pick him up and they're having in the night to steal away to another country to run for his life. And in this passage, we're not, we're not privy to like a journalist who is writing about this a few days later, but it's actually a man who has sat down and is reflecting on what he has known about the life of Jesus personally and through the uh, things passed down from the church, and he's writing a record of these events taking place that took place in the life of Jesus. And as he's doing it, he's wondering, is there deeper significance than what the events first portray to us? You see, he's reflecting. So often when something happens, we form a snap judgment about it and that's what stays in our mind about those things. That's why there's all these memes and posts about the last year, but also about anyone who anyone's ever dated, right? It's like, what you have to do is you have to, you know, like you realize your life was toxic, but it wasn't you, it was the people you were around. So you need to like change who you're around. Except who's the people that were the toxic people? Because everybody's moving to get away from those toxic people. So who are the toxic people? Right? It's like, you got to reflect on this, people, a little bit deeper. So here we see Matthew doing that. He's saying, what 
what did all this mean, the life of Jesus here? Was, was it just that he was just tossed about by all of these circumstances and there's nothing else to find? Or is there more? And what he settles upon through the inspiration of the Spirit is an unexpected verse. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, he quotes it there in verse 15 in our text. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And this is a really interesting because that passage in Hosea isn't talking about the Messiah. It's not talking about Jesus. It was written hundreds of years ago. And so how is it that Matthew is connecting these two events that seem so different from one another? Well, first, I want to show you a couple of things here from the scriptures because I think uh, the case that Matthew is building here is that the life of Jesus was bigger than one person's life, that he's trying to show us that there is a connection between the single life of one man and the whole entirety of a nation of people. That within the life of one man exists a connection to and a, a response to an interconnectedness with an entire group of people. This idea of Israel being God's son. If we look here all the way back to, so we can see Hosea 11.1 1 on the screen. But if we look all the way back to the book of Exodus we see that this has a precedence here in the scriptures where Moses is talking with Pharaoh uh, when the Israelites are in captivity and slavery. And he says this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. And there's various other examples. I just wanted to show you one where the idea of Israel is connected to a single individual. And so as Matthew's reflecting on this idea, he is doing something that a, a, a rabbi, a Jewish teacher of the day would call remiz, to remiz, which means that he believes that within the text of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that there are hints, that there are hints that the writers themselves were not even aware of, of how God might be speaking through what's on the page. If uh, the setting was different, somebody would have said amen right there. Go ahead, you still got a chance. Amen, amen. And so I wonder if our lives could be remissed as well. I wonder if, I wonder if there are hints, if we were to take the time to look back at our lives, if we were to invite other people, if we were to invite God into the past circumstances of our lives, if we might find hints as to a greater significance that we were previously unaware of, that maybe we just thought we have the worst luck of anyone in the world. Oh, this always happens to me. I'm so unlucky and I never win anything on the radio. I don't know why I thought about that one. It's just every time somebody wins something on the radio, they always say, this never happens to me, I never win. And I'm like, statistically, yes, that's, of course that's true. If you won something three times in a row on the radio, someone would get suspicious. Anyway, sidetrack. It's part of remizzing, you know, you just have to weave around. 
I wonder if that's true of our lives as well. So Matthew is finding here a deeper significance in the connection of the circumstances of life here for Jesus. And it's really interesting because for someone who is the Messiah of the world, these are rather embarrassing circumstances that the one claiming to be God had to be cared for and held and spirited away as in refugee, as a sojourner in the world, not raised up in a palace, but have to be hid under the cover of night. Yet, as Matthew looks back on it, he finds a deeper significance, an important connection to the people of God. This can give us great hope and great comfort that the one that we call Lord and Savior, the, the author and finisher of our faith, the creator of the world, has experienced such trivial difficulties that, that he was a son of man. That's a title referred to him oftentimes in the Gospels, that more so than if he was born in the palaces of Rome, that he was born in the streets of Bethlehem and had to hide and had to grow up poor, that he is more familiar with the deep experiences, not just of Israel, but of just what does it mean to be human? And so when we look back at that, we can find hints as to a deeper significance, a deeper, deeper connection, that Jesus didn't show up on the scene just to be displayed as a sacrifice. As a pastor once said, you know, there's a lot of Christians out there that are just vampires because they only want Jesus for his blood. But he lived a life of significance, of interconnectedness. Another writer of the New Testament was reflecting on the life of Jesus, and he calls Jesus by the name Christ, thinking about the perspective of what Jesus was, not just on earth, but also before he was clothed in flesh. So he refers to him as the Christ, and he says this. He enlarges this picture even further in Ephesians verses 1 Chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, he's speaking of Jesus and he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment. What is this thing to be put into effect? What is this thing that Christ is moving us towards? It's to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so we see here something that could be seen as rather insignificant or incidental or at worst embarrassing that shows us how Jesus is connected to first the common man to, and then to the story of Israel and then even greater than that to all things, to unify all things. Now, I would say and make a joke, hey, your life 
probably won't make all of those connections. But I think, but I think part of the mystery of this gospel is that that's what the writers are trying to get us to see. That our lives do not have purpose just for us, just on our own. That, oh my gosh, it's raining and I'm changing a tire outside while my kids are hungry and crying inside the car because I told them I was going to take them swimming and I didn't know the tire was flat and it's one hour until lunchtime and why is this happening to me? I, I just made that up. That's not, no, I didn't make it up. It's, that, was my, that's, that was my weekend. So um, when we think that way, as we tend to do as individualistic Americans, we can miss out that our lives are not just ours. We are connected and interconnected to those around us. So the things you are experiencing in your life have a context greater than you. That you aren't actually the main character of this story. And that can be scary to think about. Because it's like, well, I can only feel my feelings and see things the way I see them. But it can also bring us a sense of comfort that we get to be a player and a part and a character in a larger significance that's taking place. And if we reflect on our lives in that way with other people who are willing to do that, we might find things in our past that only we could look upon negatively or we wanted to avoid or get away from or not have to think about might start to have a significance for our present and therefore our future. Oftentimes our past can serve as a barrier because we're unwilling to reflect upon it. And so we can't see the future well. It's almost like we go around like a horse downtown Memphis with a bridle in our mouth and blinders on because we don't want to engage with the past. We want to crumple up 2019 and throw it in the trash can. We can only see narrowly what's right in front of us and we can't look around. We can't get a sense of the bigness of the reality that we are swept up in. Matthew is able to do that. He, he takes this further as we go back to the text. So let's pick back up in the next set of verses in verse uh, 19 here. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. This is quite amazing. In the gospel of Jesus, in, in the few little words that we have scribbled about the life of God in the flesh, we find in the beginning of the story, he's not even the main character. Joseph, a humble carpenter from a small town, is the one who is making sure God stays alive. 
So, so this, is, this is what this text is telling me, that, that God in flesh survived on the ability of a carpenter to interpret a dream and through the love of a caring and very young and experienced mother. I find that absolutely incredible. Why would God take that kind of risk? And furthermore, why would that be what we've been left to read in the Gospels? I mean, come on, Matthew, clean it up a little bit, buddy. Like, we're supposed to believe in this guy 2,000 years later, and you're putting him on a wing and a prayer right here. But if we are with Matthew putting on a reflective lens, then we can find that there is something for us to see here, something to see God as a refugee, God as a sojourner, God as the immigrant, God in the stomach of an unwed mother, God as human. This is a message that I need. This is something that I don't want to forget. This is something as I reflect on my life, I do not want to be unaware of. I do not want to be unaware of the interdependence of the life God lived on earth. Interdependence meaning that the life of the Savior was dependent and others' lives eventually in different ways were dependent upon him. That is the life all of us live. None of us in this room are independent. None of us don't have to get our food from somewhere. None of us weren't raised by a caregiver in some way. And when we consider our lives and the decisions that we make, it is so instructive for us to remember that we, as well as the Savior whose pattern we seek to follow in our life, lived a life of interdependence. When you begin to think about these things, your perspective can change. Your perspective can change. Have, have you ever realized your perspective changed on something where you say, oh, I, I never thought about it that way? Like, for, for example, um, when, when my wife and I first met, when Becky and I first met, she thought that I was immature. And then after we've been together for a while, now she thinks I'm really immature. So... <laughs> Her perspective changed, you see? <laughs> uh, but but in, in, in all seriousness, I mean, I, my perspective's changed on a lot of things. So, so why, when we get to the really serious, complex places in our humanity, do we settle for trite spiritual phrases or sentimental religiosity? to deal with those things. Surely we see here Jesus was not a party to that. I mean, I didn't even think I was going to finish college and, and now I'm entertaining ideas. Maybe I'll do a doctorate someday. My perspective is changing on life. Hey, y'all. Hey, give me a little thumbs up. Give me a little something there. Like, hey, go, go head on, Pastor Jamin. So, Here's what I want you to consider. Some, there might be some people in this room that are struggling even to believe in God. 
And if you're new here, that's just normal here. It's not like we're like having a crisis and we're looking for that person. That's just like every other person you bump into might be, yeah, like I'm not sure if God's real right now, so. But I think if we reflect on our life, we might find that some of the reasons why we don't believe in God or we are struggling to believe in Jesus is because of old, very small ideas that maybe you got in children's church, not Christ City Kids, but in other children's churches. And, And you have relegated God to those very small ideas. So it's time to reflect. It's time to look again. It's time to open it back up. Open those pages of your life and your experiences and see what else there is to find. Just don't do it alone. If you say, okay, I got you, Jamin. I'm going to go back and I'm going to get a new perspective. And you hold yourself up with some podcasts and a Bible. Like perspective means, a new perspective means like me and Brian are sitting in different places. So we have different perspectives. If I'm just sitting with myself, it's going to be hard for me to come up with a lot of new perspectives. So we do that thing together. Matthew was writing this not at a desk in a cave somewhere, but he was writing this in the midst of a community of people trying to reflect on and figure out what all does the life of this Savior mean? Earlier, just a moment ago, in speaking about the interdependence of Jesus, God in the flesh, I I mentioned that he uh, was a refugee. Yeah, he, he had to run away for fear of his life. And right now there's a lot going on with refugees in our country, in our world, and there's a lot of reactive knee-jerk lack of reflections taking place around this idea. And I just wanna, I wanna uh, highlight something just for a moment about that idea, about refugees. So right now in the world, you can put this up on the screen, there are 70 million displaced people in the world. 70 million. There's less than a million people, or there's, around, there's a little bit more than a million people in the, in the uh, me- greater Memphis area. Um, this total includes 26 million refugees who've been forced to leave their country due to a fear of persecution, war, famine, flood, disease, and it's often a combination of these factors. Uh, Right now, on a federal level, uh, the Trump administration is working to make it so that no refugees can get into our country. Our governor, who is Republican, has actually said, I will continue to let refugees, it's come down to the state level, I will continue to let refugees in. But I want to show you something about the numbers here. In the fiscal year of 2018, the whole state of Tennessee let in 487 refugees. What? Like that's a half of a half of a half of a percent of people. And so I want us to think about this individually here in our minds and as a church, but I would be remiss 
to talk about how we're interconnected and interdependent and not talk about the greater picture. You see, we need more reflection in our culture and in our country. We need to realize the connection between things. We are not different from those people. We're just in a different place in the world. But that didn't seem to stop Matthew from connecting the life of Jesus to a whole nation of people scattered among the whole wide world and to us in this room. We are not Israel. We are not the nation of Israel. And yet we claim the salvation of a Jewish man. We are connected So, there's, man, there's a lot in, the, in, in, these, in these verses here. And, um, and, and um, <laughs> uh, Darian is doing slides, and he had, I was going to show you some Hebrew stuff and, uh, from these last couple verses, and, I, and he worked really hard to fix my formatting problems. But we're not going to get to it anyway. I told him, I told him we probably wouldn't. Th- but thank you so much, Darian. The Lord sees your work. Let's read these last couple verses together, verses 19 through 23, because there is a a thought here I want to leave us with. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that, Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Part of what I wanted to show you in Hebrew was that um, this word, the Nazarene, because what is undisputed by scholars is that there is no prophet that says the Messiah comes out of or will be called a Nazarene. And so there was a lot of theories about why Matthew would write that. He didn't need it. He had plenty of other support and, and, and scriptures to connect with these things. But um, in the time that we have, what I want to draw attention to is this, is that Matthew found it really important to tell us that Jesus was from a place that nobody wanted to be from. In fact, even to this day, um, the, the Muslim culture refers to people as Nazareans in the Aramaic. And that's how closely Jesus is tied with the place of Nazareth. When one of the disciples' uh, brothers, was it Philip or Andrew, he's, when he, when he found out Jesus was from Nazareth, he told his brother, like, can anything good from, come from Nazareth? And so this is where I want us to, to, to leave and settle here on this reflection. As we reflect on these circumstances and events, the interconnectedness of our lives, as you look back at things, there are things that you will find you've been unwilling to face or admit, things that are embarrassing about your upbringing, and your life, even in this past year. But we find here Matthew highlights it, and Jesus embraces this part of his past. 
And I think one of the reasons why he was able to do that is because he was one who was able to live a reflective life. And so as you look, as you look back and you take a moment to reflect on something you've been avoiding and the company of of friends and helpers, I hope that you can draw courage and strength from the story of Jesus, from the life that he lived, from the way he was interdependent, from the way he embraced humiliating things by becoming humble. And that someday someone could say something like, hey, yeah, of course that person was able to accomplish that because they were from whatever your Nazareth is, that that's a place where they came from and was able to accomplish what they accomplished. It's not that Jesus died for the sins of the world in spite of this history. It's because of this history that connects him to the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for this morning, another chance to worship together at the beginning of a new year. Thank you that we can celebrate Robin and Suzanne being with us as well. And we thank you for your word. Amen.